Two themes I'd like to pick up on today with these readings. The first is regarding Scripture, and the second is regarding our humanity. With Scripture, there is a line in this reading that is used often by our evangelical brothers and sisters, which is, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's right there in Scripture, this idea. And a lot of times it's interpreted and used to mean that salvation comes from intellectual assent. If I simply confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that he's raised from the dead, I'll be saved. It's right there on the page, black and white. That's all I have to do. And it plays into this Reformation debate that we've been having for 500 years about whether you can lose your salvation. So whether somebody who makes this confession can then walk away from salvation or whether that confession means that they are saved always. It's called once saved, always saved. And it plays into the idea of whether our works, whether the things that we do have anything to do with salvation, or if all we have to do is give intellectual assent to these two truths of the faith. It's awkward for Catholics because this line doesn't seem to fall on our side of that debate. And yet you have other places in the scriptures, particularly that episode in the Gospel of Matthew, where works seem to matter. In Matthew, Jesus separates the sheep from the goats specifically on whether they have given food and drink and clothing and visitation to the hungry and the thirsty and the imprisoned. Somehow, these two things cannot contradict. Somehow, you cannot have the Bible saying one thing and the Bible saying another thing. They both have to be true. Because the entire Bible is the word of God, the entire Bible reveals God, and God cannot contradict himself. So, what's going on here? First, we should not be uncomfortable with the fact that the Bible is nuanced and difficult. God is impossible to fully understand. He is far too large for us to just glimpse in one verse. It's hard to glimpse God even in the entire Bible with all of its books and all of its stories and all of its verses. So why should we think that the entire mystery of God can be boiled down to one verse or a couple verses? If we put our entire faith in one verse or a couple verses, then we are worshiping a very two-dimensional God without giving credence to the entirety of who he is and what he wants to teach us. Second, though, even within this phrase, I think it goes deeper than intellectual assent. For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, remember, this is being written by St. Paul to the Romans at the height of the Roman Empire. Augustus, the Emperor Augustus, had just died, and there were reasonable Roman Empire Roman emperors still, although that would soon turn with Nero, and then he would blame the Christians for various things. But this is the height of the Roman Empire, the height of Roman power. And so confession, confession is probably, I didn't look up the Greek before this homily, and I'm sorry, but it's probably the word that's related to martyrdom. 
When one is a martyr, they give testimony to something, give testimony to a truth. And I believe this is the Latin word that comes from that word. And so we're not just talking about saying something out loud. We're not just saying, oh, if I just say this, I'm good to go. We're talking about giving testimony in court. We're talking about being able to defend one's beliefs in the face of prosecution. Paul was writing when there was already anti-Christian prosecution. And he's writing to the Romans with this phrase. He says that what we have to confess with our mouth is that Jesus is Lord. At the time, the phrase was Kaiser Kyrios, because they actually spoke a lot more Greek at this time than they did Latin, even in Rome. But the phrase was Kaiser Kyrios. This was like a greeting that the Romans would use with each other, similar to what the Nazis would do with Hail Hitler. It was just how you said hello. The Nazis copied that from the Romans, by the way. So you would just say Kaiser Kyrios as a way to affirm, I'm a Roman, I believe that Kaiser, that the Caesar is Lord, I believe that the Roman Empire is great, all of these sorts of things. So for one to confess that Jesus is Lord is a traitorous statement. It's something that goes against the very values of the Roman Empire. And he's writing to the heart of Rome. And so for us to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord is not a simple thing. It is something that requires every fiber and ounce of our being. It requires us to stand up publicly and to say something that would not be well received by those around us. It is something that, as we would say, essentially requires your whole life. This faith and works thing, it it falls apart when you realize that if you truly believe these things, it will always be expressed in your life. And the expression of that is not private. The expression of that is public and difficult. And then, of course, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Paul is writing to people who can independently verify whether Jesus was raised from the dead. This is written in the late 60s AD, only 30 years after Jesus rose from the dead. There are still so many eyewitnesses in Jerusalem to whether this is true or not. So believing in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead is not believing some sort of fiction or idea or something that doesn't have any effect. Paul is claiming a historical event which is insane, that a man conquered death. And he's writing to people who can verify that. There are connections all over the Roman Empire. There's going to be someone who knows someone in Jerusalem. They can write and be like, did this really happen? Paul is not asking for a little thing. Moving to our gospel, we should note, of course, as we move to the gospel, The devil can quote scripture too, which is why it's so important that we read the entire Bible and understand all of the truths of God as they relate to each other. A lot of times the Bible balances itself out and the truth is found in the confluence of all of those things. If we're just quoting one verse and other, and that's the basis of our faith, we will not do well because the devil can do the same thing. So moving into this, what is Jesus doing in the desert? Why is he there? He's God. He doesn't have to be there. He doesn't have to prove anything. Of course he has power over the devil. Of course he can resist the devil. He created the devil. There's no power that the devil has over God. So why is Jesus in the desert? Well, it's because Jesus is fully God and fully human. And sometimes we forget to take account of his humanity. The very nature of humanity is that we are constantly growing and learning. There's this ancient Christian heresy called monothelitism. If I were a heretic, I would be a monothelitist. It's the most attractive heresy to me. 
Monothelitism is the idea that God only has one will. But the council, I think it was Nicaea too, declared that God has two wills. The will is part of the nature. So because Jesus is both God and human, he has two wills. He has a divine will, and the will is that part of us that chooses the good, ideally. If we're choosing evil, it just means we're choosing a lesser good. But the will is the part of us that chooses the good, so we have a, he has a divine will and a human will. Two ways in which he chooses the good. Two modes through which he makes that choice. Now, those wills were always in conjunction with each other. But because he's human, he has to train his human will just as we have to train our human wills. We have to teach ourselves what is good and what is evil. We have to learn over time to habituate ourselves to the good so that habitually we will choose the right thing. And Jesus never sinned, so he never chose evil. He never chose a lesser good. But he still had to train himself as a human being so that he would be ready for his mission. And so this gospel is all about the humanity of Jesus aligning himself with his own divine will, just as we have to align ourselves with a divine will, even though we don't have the divine will. We just have to train ourselves to do this. So he spent 30 years of his life training himself as a human being, training himself in virtue, learning the good, preparing for this moment. And this is essentially the test of his humanity. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's been about. But Humanity is is odd because a lot of times we have to prove things to ourselves. He knows that he's done the right thing for 30 years. He's God. He has all of this knowledge. He knows about his humanity deeper than any of us will ever understand our own humanity. And yet, humanity kind of needs to do the thing before it's confident in doing the thing. Very much like language immersion. You kind of got to jump into that other country and start speaking the language before you're confident that you know the language. The same is true in the life of virtue. So what does Jesus do? He goes into the desert, and he doesn't eat for 40 days. If you've tried to live the life of virtue, you'll know that it's really easy to be virtuous when we're happy and healthy and content and everything is going well. And then when we reach a speed bump, a lot of our virtue falls away. When we reach a speed bump, suddenly... All of our virtues, like if we change jobs or if we're hungry or tired or if we're stressed or if something's going poorly in our relationships or any of these things, suddenly our virtue falls away and we're just knocked down to the very foundation of who we are. Most of us, for example, even in stressful times, don't stop brushing our teeth. It's a deeply ingrained virtue. So we know that's deeply part of us. We've got that virtue down. But everything else that falls apart when our life starts to fall apart, those are the virtues that are kind of tentative. And that's what Jesus is testing. He doesn't eat for 40 days because he wants to knock himself down to the very base. Like, what are the virtues that he truly has solidified in his human will, in his human heart? So he does that. He doesn't eat for 40 days. And that's when he's going to be tested. That's when all of us are tested, is when we're tired or hungry or angry or, or sad or whatever else. That's when we're tested. So he gets himself to that place where he's really going to be tested. And he can test, what virtues do I know? What am I confident in? And he's tested with three things by the devil. And these are the false happinesses that I talked about on Ash Wednesday. He's tested with pleasure. Jesus is hungry. And the devil says, turn these stones into bread. Just feel good again. But Jesus says, I don't need to feel good again. I need to follow the word of God. He's tested with pleasure. 
He's tested with power and wealth. The devil shows him all of the kingdoms of the world, which is, of course, all of the power and wealth that the entire world has to offer. And Jesus says, I don't need these things. I simply need to worship the Lord my God. Now, a quick note here. Interesting that scripture should say that all of the kingdoms of the world have been given to the devil. St. Augustine wrote a book called The City of God, where he talked about this, where there is the city of man and the city of God. City of man is that which belongs to this world which is passing away. The city of God is that which belongs to the next world which is eternal. Scripture identifies that there is a temptation for us to worship in the city of man, to say what's here and now is the only thing that is real. And so you'll see this. As people walk away from religion, politics often becomes their religion. The politics of what is here and now, what is the only thing that's real is power and wealth in this world. The scripture is saying that belongs to the devil. Everything that belongs to this world has been given to the evil one. So insofar as we give ourselves over to that kind of politics, not the politics that seeks justice in the kingdom of God, but the politics that says, I just have to do whatever's going on in this world, and only the fights in this world matter. The more we give ourselves over to that, the more we give ourselves over to the devil. The third temptation of Jesus is the temptation to fame. He's up on the parapet of the temple. This is a public area. If he throws himself down, people are going to see it. And if the angels pick him up, well, suddenly he doesn't have to prove that he's the Messiah. Everybody is going to know. Well, this is the temptation to fame, another false happiness that all of us are tempted by. So Jesus is tempted by pleasure, power, wealth, and fame. And he says, I don't need any of that. I know that the only thing I need is God. I'm not going to test God. I am going to worship God. I'm going to live on the word of God. Jesus has proven to himself in his humanity that his humanity is ready for his mission. He's ready to take on this three-year thing that's going to test him in so many ways. The last thing I'll point out about our gospel. Two of the temptations are temptations against identity. The devil says, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, there is a doubt in humanity that we are loved. There's a doubt that God would actually love us and care for us. And the devil is poking that doubt in Jesus' humanity. Maybe you've got it all wrong. Maybe you're making it up. Maybe you're a crazy person. Maybe you're not actually beloved by God or taken care of by God. The devil is poking that doubt. And when we're tempted in our humanity, the devil points that, pokes at that doubt. He wants us to doubt that we are the sons and daughters of God. But we can Send the devil packing. We can resist these temptations powerfully if we simply remind ourselves, I am a beloved son of God. I am a beloved daughter of God. I was adopted in the baptismal font. God loves me and cares for me always. If we're rooted in that identity, the devil has nothing to say to us.